0: Hello and welcome to Relative Pitch. We appreciate you tuning into our podcast. Our mission is to give you young musicians' perspectives on hot topics in the music world. By sharing our thoughts and opinions, we hope to help with bringing positive change and diversification to the music world. Here are your hosts, Lauren Green, Anthony Morris, and Michael Brown. hello everyone welcome to another episode of relative pitch this is season one episode 11 making it as a performer pedagogy auditions and discipline featuring miss christina smith of the atlanta symphony christina we are so 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 excited to have you here joining us and we're just it's such a privilege to have you here
1: it is my honor and privilege to be with you guys today i'm super excited to be on the podcast Awesome. And
0: if you guys don't know, Christina is like my teacher from undergrad. So this is like crazy because I'm like, not with her anymore tears. But we obviously still have this wonderful connection. And that's one of the beautiful things about I believe higher ed. Um, So Christina, why don't you tell us about yourself?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, um, I am celebrating my 30th anniversary as principal flute in the Atlantic Woo! Sea. <laughs> and what a strange season to be celebrating year number 30. Um, but I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um, I started playing the flute when I was seven years old. And the reason I started at seven and not earlier, because I was begging my mom to, to start earlier, after I saw a flute on Sesame Street, when I was four, the reason I started at age seven is because it took me that long for my arms to be long enough to reach the keys because back in the 70s they didn't have these instruments with the curved head joint that they have now where you see uh, a lot of much younger kids like kids are starting flute now at like three and four and five um and they're able to do so because they um they you know if you have your flute here the, the head joint is curved so your arms can be short you know you can play the flute so i had to wait until i was seven And um, I I started with private lessons because uh, of course my school didn't have any music at that point in second grade. And um, I mean, not, not, not rocket science for me, I was obsessed with the flute and all I did was practice. I just couldn't wait to get home and spend three or four hours after school in my room with the door closed, practicing my flute. I was a super perfectionist type A personality and Um, my parents are not musical at all, but they, um, fortunately, and I just feel so incredibly lucky that they supported me, uh, doing what I wanted to do and taking me to the music lessons and driving me to the youth orchestra rehearsals and all of that. Um, they, they never discouraged what my, what my dream was and, um, and uh, I spent my senior year of high school at Interlaken Arts Academy, which was a very transforming experience for me to be to come from my public school in California and then go to Interlaken for my senior year. A lot of students actually do that at the academy. There's very large senior class and a very small freshman class because um, you know it's also really young to kind of leave home. You're basically going to yeah. college at that point because you're just you're gone and. Uh, I spent my senior year there and just to be around all of the other students who um, who were, wanted to do what I wanted to do and they were serious and they played their instruments all day long and they cared about the arts and um, that was really powerful for me and um, I went on to uh, spend my first two years of college at the Curtis Institute of Music studying with Julius Baker. And in between my second and third year over the summer, my teacher encouraged me to come down to Atlanta and audition for Principal Flute to start getting audition experience. And here I am, <laughs> I got the job. So um, so I had a very um, unusual path to get to where I am now. It has, it seems like it was uh, all kind of set in stone and easy, but its I've had my challenges along the way for sure um but uh I'm still doing it 30 years later and I still love it I still love my job I still love playing in the orchestra and most importantly I still love music
0: that's amazing 30 years like oh my oh my gosh what do you so I know this the answer to this question but in those 30 years of course you weren't just performing you also had Um, obviously teaching experience and other things. So tell us about the other things besides performing that you have been up to.
1: Well, some of the other things that I do and that I have done and I continue to do, I would say most importantly, I teach. And I started teaching my first year in the orchestra here in Atlanta, just privately. I then started teaching at various schools, including Kennesaw State University, where I met Lauren and she graduated from my studio a year ago, Um, um, and I would say that the teaching part of what I do as I've gotten older and more mature has actually become as important, if not more important at times to me personally as my performances that I do with the Atlanta Symphony and elsewhere. Um, I find that teaching has made me a better player, a stronger person, a stronger artist um and for those people who do choose to teach along with their performance career, um, they're, they're probably doing it because they love teaching, they love interacting with the students. And what I think what students don't understand is what we get out of the experience with working with the student is as profound in a way as the students experience working with a, a a performer who's performing nonstop you know it's it's um I think that the people who do teach and enjoy it really probably had really good teachers in their past as I did as I was so fortunate to have amazing amazing teachers and um I've learned in some ways I've learned more from my students than I have from any other aspect of what I do because the students Um, every student I have is different. They're coming. I have to meet them where they are. And that's what I love about it. I meet them where they're coming from, what their perspective is, what they want to get out of it, where they want to take it. And finding that, um, as a team effort with them is so incredibly rewarding, incredibly fun. Um, knowing that I I'm possibly making a big difference in somebody's life that they may or may not, uh, you know, um, take it to a professional level necessarily. One of the schools I teach at here in Atlanta is Emory University. And most of the students I teach at Emory are actually not even music majors, but those students perhaps are going to be on the board of directors of a symphony someday or of an academic institution or whatever, wherever they're gonna take it. Um, I'll share, uh, I, I had a, a really, An incredible thing happened to me a couple of years ago. I was playing at a donor event uh, for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra at a a donor's home, and it was a private event. And I was playing and talking about the orchestra. And a woman came up to me, and she was just actually just a few years younger than me. And she said, "Hi, my name is so and so, and I just don't know if you remember me, but." I studied flute with you your first year in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and I might have been your first student. And I said, of course I remember you. You were my first private student in Atlanta. And this woman was um, just because I started in, my, in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra so young. I started when I was 20. She was, only, she was in high school, but she was only a few years younger than me. And um, she said, my mom talks about you all the time. And Um, I'm now, uh, I now own my own financial firm. I I got a degree in finance after I studied with you, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, I just want you to know that what I learned from you in my flute lessons has informed everything I've done since then. And I, I almost started to cry because it was just, I mean, it's again, for those of us who teach You can't have a better impact than that, you know, whether it doesn't matter to me what somebody does with their flute, what somebody does later if they stop playing or whatever. It's it's what they learn from the study of music and the study of getting good at doing something and learning the discipline it takes to do that um, is is incredibly valuable. Um, and that's what I think uh, a lot of institutions don't realize. They think that, you know, unless the student takes it and becomes the next principal flu of the New York Philharmonic, well, then why bother if you're not going to do that? Of course, that's not true, right? So we know that the study of music is, it, it permeates every cell of our brain and our body and learning how to do something at a really excellent level is um, it's powerful and it, it can inform everything else that we do in our life. And so um, I wanted to share that experience since I was talking about teaching, but some of you, your question was about uh, what else I do, what, you know, when, besides playing in the Atlanta Symphony, so of course teaching. And um, the other thing that things that I do uh, besides playing in the orchestra um, are, I play a lot of chamber music. I play at a lot of music festivals and um, occasionally I, <laughs> play um, as a concerto soloist uh, in various places, et cetera. So things that are non-orchestral, um, you know, especially chamber of music, I've gotten involved with a group here in Atlanta that's, that's new um, called the Marion Ensemble. It was founded by Elizabeth Remy Johnson, who's a principal harpist in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. It's all female performers and all we only play works written by female composers. Um, Wow. So so kind of yeah. So it's kind of apropos to your podcast here. It's a it's a really special group. I think the um, the ensemble will really do a lot of um, interesting things and things that mean are meaningful uh, works that are meaningful champion championing works by under an underrepresented uh, represented group of of composers. And that's been really uh, stimulating and interesting to be a part of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, wow. First of all, as a teacher, hearing you speak about your um, experiences teaching really has uh, did some things on me because, I mean, I had a couple of days ago, I had a sister to tell me, Mr. Morris, thank you for being so nice. Thank you. Like, you're so talented. Just thank you for caring about us. And I'm like, I just started three months ago, and your story, like, I'm now thinking about 30, 40 years from now, what will happen? And just hearing that story from you, I mean, our teachers um, affect us so much. And I look at how you've affected Lauren, and it's just so, it is so beautiful to see as a person on the outside. Um, I do have a question of like, what have you seen change throughout the years with your students? Um, whether it's their personality uh, discipline, um, I know a lot of th- people say, you know, this generation now has a lot of things going. you know, there's always things happening. So how has that changed over the years um, from your perspective?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And um, I, just to what you said uh, first, I wanted to just say that um, it's interesting the relationship between student and teacher and this 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 kid who came to you, and said, "Oh, thank you for being so nice." And um, again, it's like we don't we don't underestimate the impact that we have, right, with with our students. Um, and the relationship between music teacher and student is a really special one. It's not the same as an academic relationship because we're not standing up in front of a classroom of, you know, thirty or three hundred people. But it's this it's this personal getting to know someone on a on a level that it's not any other teacher it's not your parents you know it's it's something really intimate and really special that can really be lifelong Mm -hmm. um so i I love what you just said so how has this landscape changed in terms of teaching in the last 30 years it has changed like astronomically and of course the biggest change that i've seen is just the advent of technology Mm -hmm. it's that um And when I was a student and when I first started teaching, we didn't have the internet, no one had a computer in their home. Um, I never had a computer in any of my my school classrooms. I never did. I'm, I'm that last generation, generation X, I guess, where we did not grow up with computers or the world wide web or the internet or the iPhone or anything like that. So the biggest change that I've seen is that now all students have access to actually way more information than they can even digest you know in the palm of their hand literally because who doesn't have a smartphone (laughs) you know um so i and i don't want to sound like an old curmudgeon i do think that there was something um a really different feel to when i was a student to where i had to save up 15 dollars and go to tower records to the classical department and pick out which recording of Daphnis and Chloe I wanted to buy and listen to it because that was the only way we could access music, you know, and now I can pick up my phone and there's 50 amazing recordings at my fingertips, you know, so, so it's, you know, it's this, um, this instant gratification with technology. It's, it's a bit of a catch-22 in my book, you know, it's something that is amazing and wonderful and that, it it, it provides access for so many people that um maybe wouldn't ordinarily have it it provides like a plethora of information about the music that we're studying and it literally is at our fingertips um but in some ways there's this this element for me that like i know i i lived through the point where we didn't have all that so i know what it was like where you had to like oh what does um you know i'm playing the pulak sonata and this word in, in the music, it says, say day. Oh, what does that mean? And I have to like trek to the music library and get the French to English dictionary and open it up. And, Oh, it means retard. You know what I mean? Like it's this, you, you kind of have to work for the information where I find with some of my students now, of course not Lauren, but some of my students, like I find that because it's so readily and readily available, they actually don't take enough advantage of it if that makes sense. Um, so, so I think it's um, in some ways, it's a blessing and a curse that, that um, change of having this technology uh, at the ready all the time. Um, but, at the, but the, the positive as well is that this, in this age of technology, we're seeing, uh, I mean, so many students now have access to uh, great, lectures, classes, information online, recordings, uh, all you really need is an internet connection. And that's that's something really, really positive. And then of course, um, the next phase with classical music, what's it gonna look like for all of us? We're, as, as we're teaching students, as we're performing music, it's this integration of technology in what we do, how are we going to make uh, what we do with the classical music morph into the next era, uh, you know, and uh, I don't have any of the answers for that, because I'm not programmed that way. But I do think the next generation, your generation, all of you um, are are going to be the, the, um, the leaders in terms of how, how our art is going to alter and change because of the technological age.
2: Thank you. Uh, I mean, technology, even me, I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I work some of this stuff? And I was born in this age. And I'm like, I can't keep up. It's like every single day, something new is popping up for us every day.
3: And I was, I mean, I'm the same way, Anthony. Uh, Lauren knows, because Lauren is my IT person. Because i I'll just be doing something and I'm like, Lauren, I'm lost. I, I really cannot do this. And she calls me and she does it. With the technology thing, and uh, you growing up and being a student without technology, and now we have technology, I find myself at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m., looking up these kids, like 11, 12-year-olds, who can do stuff that I can't even do. And it sometimes causes uh, me to feel bad or feel like I'm not doing enough. So do you see that kind of like technology being a hindrance in that aspect instead of helping
1: I, that's such a great question. Um, I, do you know what I've experienced recently and maybe, you, you know, you all are in this world as well, but, um, I've had various students, um, you know, making their pre-screen videos for various schools, etc., And I see this culture now that's online where everybody posts their, their pre-screen video. And everyone's searching for everybody else's and they're watching each other's pre-screen video and there's something about that to me that is so violating like why would you post your pre-screen video it's something that the these the school is privy to and you made it but why would you want anybody else out there to look at it and and judge it or or like oh hey this is the person that got invited to this audition look how they play you know and it's this kind of like comparative um, culture that I think has begun because of, as you said, Michael, the the technology, this age that we're in, um, that I'm not sure is really healthy, psychologically healthy. And um, that bothers me. I'll say and yeah like it's like you said all these kids know how to do this they know how to post this they're you know they they know way more than we do I've stopped feeling stupid about that (laughs) I'm just like I'm happy where I am I'm happy to be that old school flute player in Atlanta you know and um I'm I own it you know and I'm okay with it
0: yeah that's that's crazy and like I, I agree with Michael there's you can go find almost anyone nowadays. Like I remember uh, I was uh, back in Albuquerque with one of my friends, Jimmy. And he was like, look at this kid I just found on Instagram. And this, this guy had like thousands of videos posted on his Instagram of him playing different things. And like, um, had like in his bio, like 14 K gold flute, all this stuff. And like, so young, so young. And so I'm just like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, I, like, there's just some things that just really make me question like what's really going on. And like, it's, there's some things that I really appreciate about being able to go online and like listen to principal players. They like, because there are some uh, principal players or certain symphonies who do have uh, um, Instagram accounts and who post like daily and post videos and everything. And I'm like, that's cool. It's really cool. And then you have the kids who are like the young prodigies as Michael was uh, hinting to earlier. And it's just really easy to go down a rabbit hole um, and just, especially with comparison. And that is, a, I agree that that's like probably the worst thing that has come from technology being developed so much to this point is so easy to go compare yourself to like thousands of people out there.
1: I, th- yeah. And thank you for saying that, Lauren. It's, it's absolutely, the you know, the Facebook culture. Um which which not it's not just musical. It's this culture Mm -hmm. that people post when they make this amazing dinner on Facebook and they put pictures there. And it's not that you know, I'm not I'm not trying to (laughs) criticize that, but Uh. but it's this it it can uh make somebody else feel like, oh well, you know, I had a terrible day and I can't afford to get the groceries I need for my family right now, or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, you know, it's it it can really make others feel bad and I know they've done psychological studies where they they interview people before they open the Facebook app and after they open the Facebook app and everybody interviewed said they felt a lower state of mind after they opened their Facebook app yes and 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 I'm you know I'm a hypocrite I'm on Facebook but I found years ago that if I wasn't on Facebook if I didn't say hey I'm playing a recital tomorrow night on Facebook literally nobody would be there because they wouldn't know about it because like for a while it was like the only way that a lot of people really articulated with the world you know and because people who reads their email anymore you know like everyone's getting their stuff from social media so again it's this blessing and a curse but i would say to your your um what you observed lauren about comparing ourselves to whomever online, these videos that people post of these kind of maybe perhaps prodigy type of players, um, first of all, um, you're getting a snapshot of something that might be somebody's party trick. It might be uh, something that they really excel at and there's other things in their playing that really lack depth or lack, um, you know, skill in other ways. Um, It's, being a great artist and a great musician is a very complex and um, and deep thing. You know, it's not something that is just like, hey, I can play the Voliere at you know eighth note equals one hundred seventy six. Yeah, okay, well, okay. So, what does your vibrato sound like in the second movement of the American chart? You know, like there's things that are that require a lot more life experience and depth. And, and we, we can easily go down that rabbit hole, right. Of, of comparing ourselves to this or to that. Um, I think for me, like I would advise students to just like, just stay away from that. Just don't, don't open it. Don't open the app. Don't search. Don't just, um, and I'll. I'll mention, this is probably, I probably shouldn't mention this on this podcast, but in the, because I know you guys talk a lot about cancel culture and things, but the, you know, I, I will say like back in the nineties, I'm going to mention the name Tiger Woods, you know, he's the controversial sports figure, but let's just look at his, his, his golf record. Okay. Um, One of the things that I really admired about him as uh, an athlete, was that when he was out on the golf course, he never looked at the leaderboard. The leaderboard is that thing on the course, which tells you what place you're in, in the, in the PGA tournament. And other amazing golfers were constantly looking over the shoulder. Like, where am I? Am I number two? Oh, I just, you know, I just had a double shot. So I, you know, now I'm number three, you know, but Tiger, he, he like never looked at where he was in the tournament, because the only person he was competing with was himself. himself. And I, yeah. I mentioned that even though it's, you know, he's a very controversial figure, he became a controversial figure, but um, that element of his athleticism and his focus and his drive um, is really something t- I think we can we can take something away from that.
0: Yeah. I, I agree with that. And I one thing that I really appreciated about being in your studio specifically was the style of teaching you had. I didn't feel like, I mean, we're, yeah, we're in this new technical, technological age where like, yes, everything is available, but you were, I, I never felt like you were like, you need to be like on the internet all the time, 24 seven. Cause I have friends who, of course, at UNM who have come from other studios and other places where um, it was like, kind of their thing they had to post on certain groups every week online and they had to go look at who's this. And it was a part of their culture to be like, did you see who got into this this year? Did you see who got into that? Yada, yada, yada. Cause it's everywhere. Like people are posting those things everywhere. And so what I really appreciated, cause at first I was like, huh, I wonder why like we never did that. And then I was like, thank God. We never did that because I really, really, truly, um, what I see, and this is something I think I've talked to Michael and Anthony about before, but they're the people who we see as amazing artists. And we are like, this is just a great musician, but we don't really see them a lot. Like, they're not really doing a lot on social media and they, they're doing their own thing. But we're like, we know this person is amazing versus, what, what do I call them? Um, I think I use the word clout chasers a lot and what that is is yeah clout chasers it's just really basically people who are like like you said posting things that are really good oh let me play something really super fast and do things that are just kind of like novelty like knickknack I don't even know it's just something that I just I don't care to listen to I'm just kind of like I have friends who are oh my gosh that was so cool I'm just like like looking at it and listening to them like there's nothing in this that inspires me like nothing in this actually inspires me and it's unfortunate to see so many people falling into this trap of trying to be the most popular person to get the most likes, the most views and most comments. And that is just something that is so toxic to the music, uh, I think, uh, culture and our, um, our atmosphere because it's, it's basically pushing extravagance and decadence and all these other weird, like non really musical ideas onto us and not really focusing on like what's actually important to us, which is music.
1: That is so well said, Lauren. And uh, maybe maybe I brainwashed you, but I, I <laughs> Thank sometimes you I wonder you did. <laughs> but um, yeah I you know as you know I don't have it's not important to me that my students post things online or or watch what other people are doing online. Unless I say, you know, I want you to watch this video of Julius Baker or somebody playing right. something for a specific reason. But um, I, you know, as you know, I don't pr- um, promote that, and I guess part of the reason I don't promote it is because you know, I don't come from that world, but I also agree with what you just said. I think it can create kind of a more toxic it can ca- it can cause people to not feel good about what they're doing because they're in this mindset of comparative. They're comparing themselves to X, y, or Z, and I don't think we grow when we're in that state unless we're you know we need to be looking at ourselves and inward and what what gains can we make with our own artistry rather than comparing it against some quite artificial benchmark of so-and-so playing this online or so-and-so playing this online it's also um it's it's also very uh these these They're like sound bites that we're watching online of this person doing this little thing and this person doing this little thing. And keep in mind when we audition for orchestras, okay. Hypothetically, if you're taking an orchestra audition, you, you have to show, you have to show so many aspects of, of, of great artistry in, every type of music of course you have to play your Mozart concerto for your instrument and if you're a string player sometimes you have to play a Bach or a Brahms or a Tchaikovsky concerto in addition you have to play you know 25 excerpts that are all from different eras different characters different time periods different skills required and sometimes in a final round you know, we're out there listening to somebody play for 45 minutes or an hour, because we want that much information about what they can and can't do. So what we're watching online are like, it's like the age we live in, it's sound bites, you know, it's sound bite here, sound bite here, things that are taken out of context, there is no context. And um, it's hard to keep that in mind when we saturate ourselves with that information. So my thing with myself personally, and also with my students is like, just worry about yourself. Don't look at the leaderboard, <laughs> you know, just, just worry about yourself. How can you, how can I grow? How, what can I do to improve my playing today? What can I listen to that would be edifying? Um, you know, what recording of this piece would give me more perspective for what I'm studying here, to to bring the composer's intentions to life.
0: Yeah, that I mean that I think that kind of speaks to all of us because none of us I feel like are we're not um no one's an influencer on here you know yeah. uh, <laughs> Instagram influencer always on. Unf- <laughs> well, I amazing. think you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's like it's fun to keep up. I think my my the main thing about um I how I see like social media is oh my friends who are like far away who I can't keep track of I get to see what them and their families are up to and it's nice to every now and then have a check-in and just know what people are doing um but then I feel like we've gotten away and it's now a platform that isn't just for that and then yeah that's that's the whole thing going on Facebook sometimes it's just kind of like oh god let me go on Facebook like and you're just kind of worried about what you're gonna see and like you're just worried about oh what is this person talking about um, so that makes sense, and I, I completely it resonates with me. Everything that you said resonates with me.
1: Yeah, I, I I'm oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Anthony.
2: Um, it's funny that we're talking about this because legit last night, I was researching conductors, watching them on YouTube, like, huh, how are they doing that? what What are they doing? So it's funny that we're having this conversation right now because I will say after looking at it, I think sometimes some people do take the good from it, like oh, They're doing something good. Let me see if I could, you know, try to do something like that. But I do, I know personally, I have witnessed where it's been taken in that bat realm as well, where it's like, well, I can do better than them. And it's like, that's not the point of this. That's not the point of music. And I constantly tell my students this, that nothing is competition in music. You should never look at music as a competition because when it becomes a competition, it's no longer music because music is a personal thing. And when you make a personal thing as a competition, you've now lost that connection with your soul to music. And I try and I hope I, whatever I say to my students, it really gets with them because seeing that competitive thing in music is honestly really kind of disgusting. And I think that's where us three as friends, we love to say this on this podcast of like, you just need to have a personal connection with music. And that is, and it literally will be, you will get so many rewards. Personally, people, I mean, when I hear recordings, like I was listening to all of your recordings before, and I'm like, I could feel something. When I feel something, I'm like, that's it. That is what, what, we're, what we want at the end of the day. Um, so it's funny that we're having this conversation right now because it's really, really saying something about this day and age.
1: I, that is so well said, Anthony. And and um, I think the other thing that's hard to keep in mind when you're a young person starting, perhaps your or finishing your studies or starting a career and finding your niche is that there is a place for all of us in music, and it doesn't have to look like the textbook whatever and it, and you know, I, I think that we, um, we sometimes are like, Oh, well, this person didn't get an orchestra job by the time when they were 30. Okay, so well, they're never gonna make it. They're, that is why is that making it? There are so many areas, avenues, niches, paths, for people to to find a way to to use their music to impact somebody's life, and to impact their own lives. And it it doesn't have to look like some, you know, textbook thing. I I just, and I think when, when we're young, it's very hard to see past that, you know, like, like you said, like, oh, this person got into this festival. Look at this person and look at this person. Well, guess what? You, I don't, like for me, when I teach people, I have, I absolutely don't care what festival you get in. I don't care whether you made Georgia Allstate or not. I don't care like what what to do, man. All I care about is finding some way to connect with that person and help them do something better on the flutes, help them do what they want to do, help them become better at expressing, because that's going to be the thing that makes them have satisfaction and fulfillment from their music, no matter what that ends up looking like, like and no matter where music is going to ultimately fit into their life picture.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And I, I completely agree. I wanted to say real quick, your album, your solo album with, uh, I think Elizabeth Remy Johnson, your the harpist of ASO. Yes. It's fantastic. I love it. I've listened to it. like Ever since I was introduced to you, as I think Lauren drug me to one of your solo recitals at KSU. The minute after, I was like, in trying to find like all the recordings because <laughs> like, the album was amazing and i was just wondering because like a lot of orchestral musicians when they get like when they win the job like right now as a young younger generation we call it winning the job like because we feel like that is it once you're there whoo, you good for your life and but you like won the job and then you come out with this amazing solo album and then you like i heard you play the Jolivet. I think it was either concertino or concerto with the ASO one time. And you're always doing the solo stuff and it's great. And for the album, did you, was there a reason for recording it? Was it out of fun or?
1: Like, it, um, and thank you so much for your kind words. I mean, I guess the reason I haven't recorded more solo albums is because I'm I'm afraid of doing it. I mean, it's so, it's so hard to do to make an album and these artists who just crank out recordings all the time. I'm like, uh, more power to you because it's so it's such a grueling process, but the reason that um Elizabeth and I recorded that album was really just as a celebration of our partnership together we elizabeth um has been in the orchestra almost as long as I have. I think she came like my fourth or fifth year, and we have had a flute and harp duo ever since we we hit it off. We actually were students high school students at tanglewood b u t i program together, so we knew each other before she came here. And then she became our principal harpist. And so we um, we started our flute and harp collaboration. We played so much of the flute and harp repertoire together that we just kind of had the idea, oh, why don't we make a recording? And because we just really enjoyed playing together and partnering together. So that's why we did that. But I will say the recordings that I'm most proud of are actually um, the ASO recordings that I've been lucky enough to record in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So. We, when, when I joined the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra it was fall of 1991. And the orchestra at that time was one of the most recorded orchestras. It might've been the second most recorded orchestra in the country. We were making three CDs a year of standard repertoire for tel label, which is a award-winning label. And we don't, have, we don't have that recording setup anymore because technology has changed and everyone downloads music now. No one makes mm-hmm. CDs anymore. So I was fortunate enough to record, you know, all almost all of the big first flute excerpts in the orchestral excerpts book with my orchestra for the Tel-Arc label in the nineties, you know, like Mendelssohn's Scherzo, Peter and the Wolf, Carnival of the Animals, uh, Daphnis and Chloe, you know, like all of of these things uh, I was so fortunate to record with my orchestra. And that's, um, I would say like as far as recording, that's what I'm the most proud of. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. How have you seen since joining, uh, the ASO, how have you seen Atlanta and the symphony of Atlanta change during your time? And how have you seen orchestra in general change during your tenure as principal flute? Wow. Um, there have
1: been, tons of changes i mean i'll I'll start with just the the recording industry that i was just talking about um like as we know with the advent of technology and the internet and iphones um making cds and people buying cds anymore is kind of a thing of the past like now when you buy a new car there's no cd player in it anymore you know we just i mean we just don't um use them anymore because everybody downloads music as mp3s or they have apple music or whatever so um that has kind of changed the um the uh recording uh aspect of the job that used to be a really big deal for the atlanta symphony orchestra because that's what we were known for as a as a making making grammy award-winning recordings but in terms of the orchestra itself um I I mean, I was thinking the other day I there's 16 players in our woodwind section, you know, there's four of every instrument and I think I've been on the audition committee of everybody except three people now, because that's how much turnover we've had since I've joined the orchestra so there's a lot more young players on stage and one I'm now I'm, I guess I'm joining the older group, but it's 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 interesting to. um. See the changes in style that come along with having new players sit in these big positions, um, and that's just something that's going to happen no matter what. Because if a different person is sitting there, you're going to have a different sound and a different kind of like aesthetic to the the way that people play. Um, I mean, I think, I think that the, the level of playing just gets better and better and better. And so there's a huge challenge uh, when you've had your job for years and years to just keep striving for something. For me, like when I'm practicing and I'm working, I'm always, I always feel like I'm striving for something that's unattainable. Like I'm never happy with what I do. I never walk off stage. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that was awesome. I'm so awesome. I never think that I'm always like, Oh man, why did I do that? Why did that sound like that? Why couldn't I do that? You know, I'm always um, criticizing myself, hopefully in a, in a healthy way. But I, I think, um yeah, I think um Atlanta has changed tremendously obviously too, since I've been here. I mean, obviously it's gotten so much more built up. There's like, Skyscrapers everywhere. There's a lot. Atlanta is a very active city. There's always things happening. There's always things being built. There always is an energy to the city. And I'm really grateful for that because, you know, it feels like you're living in a vibrant culture. Um, Areas of Atlanta that had, like, you know, that were very run down are now like having a renaissance of people moving in fixing things up and very um, diverse neighborhoods with diverse culture uh, happening that everybody wants to be a part of. Um, That aspect of Atlanta, I'm really grateful for. Um, Yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we were kind of on the audition process or just kind of auditions in general. I wanted to ask, you've been like you said you've been a panelist on so many orchestral auditions specifically Atlanta Symphony so as a judge as a pan- as someone on the panel what what who are the people like that you're like it catches your attention who are the people who you're kind of like oh i already know how this is going to go like what how do you differentiate between everyone who walks into an audition and how you come to a conclusion of this is a person who should get this job
1: that is uh, the million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I I think that um, in some ways, all the panelists. Okay, so when you audition for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, there's a screen, and there are seven people sitting behind the screen, and every committee is made up of a requisite composition. So if it's a principal position that's being auditioned for, there has to be a certain number of number of principal players behind the screen. If it's a section position, there has to be a certain number of players from that section who are serving plus others. There's really specific makeups of committees and every orchestra has that. Um, And I would say that of the seven people behind the the screen, we're possibly all listening for slightly different things. There's slightly different things that uh, are 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 uh a hard no and they're slightly different things that are like oh yeah i want someone who plays like that but i would say the the consistent answer to the question the, the what consistently across the board i would say is that the players who don't have any problems with their playing are the are the ones that would typically pass through a first round i always think the first round is the hardest one to pass through because you're because the, there's so much ear fatigue from the committee because you're listening to player after player after player after player um and sometimes you know with um which which with the advent of having auditions that become more and more um impartial and fair um, I know I, I think my orchestra is moving toward um, absolutely no screening of resumes and we just hear everybody who wants to come but we might hear them for a shorter amount of time so the the positive is that you know we don't have to screen resumes which I've never thought we should screen resumes anyway but but um and then the reason we screened resumes is because we didn't have enough time allotted to us by our our stage availability it's a complicated question I won't go into that but now, I think we're moving to a process where we hear people play for a shorter amount of time, but we hear everybody who wants to come, so it doesn't matter who who you are, you can just come um but you know when you have a shorter amount of time to be heard and to show what you can do, you can't have any articulation issues, you can't have any tone quality issues, you can't have any intonation issues, you can't have any issues with uh dynamic control, you know like all of these things you you have to be able to um sound like you you are in character for every single thing you play and it's easy for you and you're confident about it and are no like no problems there
0: yeah that that makes complete sense i mean just like you're looking for someone who's like here i am this is how i play this is how it's supposed to go Yeah, I mean, for auditions, and this is a, I'm taking a history of orchestra class right now. Actually, I think I'm wrapping up the semester of it, doing the final right now. And it was so interesting talking about the different audition processes, like the, yeah, every, um, every specific orchestras, but mainly like US versus like European um, orchestras and how they choose to do auditions. And I wanted to ask, because I'm sure you're very familiar with the difference and like what, like what they do, and I i don't, which do you prefer? Like, do you like the way that European, and it, um, I think, I believe the main thing that they do, it's not like, it's a solo. It's like more like solo, like it's a person who comes and they just play as if they're a soloist versus like US or like orchestras is more like excerpts. And you play like, like you said, like 25 different ones at the same time. So do you see, like, is there a pro and a con to, to both? Like, do you prefer one over the other? Do you like the audition process that we currently
1: have? Um, yeah, that's one of the differences with European orchestras. I, I, my understanding is that a lot of European orchestras also just, like, invite people to the audition. So it's almost as much like, who do you know, who can get you an invitation, etc. which I am not a fan of. Um, right. I'm just not wired that way. I don't think it's fair, um, and I, I think that um, first of all, to your your comment about like the solo versus the orchestral playing, I I think it's important to show both, I, even if it's for a second woodwind position, even if it's for a section string position. I think, I think it means something if you can play a concerto for your instrument and sound absolutely fantastic um soloistic you could stand in front of the orchestra at any time and sound like a great soloist I think that's a great skill to have but I I prefer to have most of the emphasis emphasis to be on the excerpts because that's what the job is you know that's that's what you have to do on the job um I I I would like to see, I mean, I think most orchestras are almost in this category anyway, but I would like to see American orchestras move to where um, everybody's invited to the audition so anyone sends their resume, if you want to play you can come play, you can be stopped at any time. So you can play the first phrase of your Mozart concerto and say thank you very much, but you had your chance, you know, so if we need to hear 300 people play we can. not um, and that the uh, that the screens stay up until the person's hired. I, I just feel I feel that that's, that's where we are. That's where we should be. I feel like that's where we should have been a long time ago. Um, I've never personally exp- been on a committee where I f- have felt that there has been any uh, bias in in terms of hiring, but I think what matters is the way somebody plays. So why not we? Why don't we just make it accessible to all, and that someone is really just being hired with absolutely no biases that could creep in for any reason, whether it's gender, race, age, um, nationality, experience level. You know, like why not have have their music speak for itself I've always Lawrence heard me say this before but like I just believe someone's music making should speak for itself you don't have to self promote you you know you don't have to <laughs> post things on Facebook you know it's i I believe that people's music making can speak for itself even behind a screen even till the final the final hire is made so that would be my um my response in terms of contrasting American and European um, hiring processes for orchestras.
2: Um, so on the audition process, I have about just two questions. Um, the first one is, um, I'm pretty sure you've set in on auditions for you know upcoming freshmen in the college. What do you listen for, um, for a singer that's in high school um, thinking of becoming a, a student at the university? What, qualities do you listen for um, in their playing?
1: Um, I have sat on the auditions for the freshmen coming in. And um, for me, one of the things I take into consideration is the application from the student and what are their personal goals with their instrument, with their music. So if I'm listening to someone coming in for flute performance, um, I'm listening maybe for a slightly different set of criteria. Uh, if I'm listening to a music ed student, I'm listening for maybe a different set of criteria. I actually do read everybody's application. I read their essay uh, and a lot of most schools now their essay is, why do you want to do this? You know, <laughs> one of the questions you have to answer is, why do you want to do this? Um, and it matters to me what they write. Um, be, and I, I, I want to hear, first of all, concept of quality of sound when, when I hear somebody play, that they have, they don't have to, it doesn't have to be perfect, but they have to have a concept of beautiful sound quality. I want them to know all their major scales fluently, preferably minors as well, um, and to play st- some standard repertoire that is contrasting at a, a decent level. Um, I also want to see the student, um, as I interact with them, I want them to have a sense that they're open to working, you know, like they're, that they have a good work ethic and that I don't necessarily, I'm not looking for somebody to, you know, play like they're the next, you know, major soloist coming out of the United States. I, I, I'm more interested in our relationship and are they receptive to new ideas do they have a good work ethic? Do they prepare um, in between lessons and things like that? That's for me. Okay. Um, that's that's what's important to me um, and the schools that I am currently involved with. Um, you know, if I taught at a you know the Curtis Institute or my you know my school or like Juilliard or you know a conserv a conservatory in the Northeast or something, you know where you're getting. Um, people from all different countries coming in who are just prodigy level, um, musicians, I may have a a different approach because, um, you know, perhaps they're more selective with level and things like that. But, um, I have, I think my students are incredibly high level and I value what they bring to the table. Um, and I value the way that we work together because it's a long-term relationship. It's four years. And I wanna know that we can go from here to here together. And we're both open-minded and we work well together. That's really, really important to me.
2: Yes, and um, one thing that I love that you said uh, with your uh, new chamber group that you're with is uh, performing music written by groups that usually no one, you know, programs. So diversity in music. We've been talking about it. It's been like one of our big things right now, Um, and I think it should continue to be a topic until some change start to happen. So uh, have you seen a uh, change in, you know, programming diverse music from uh, people who do not look like the stereotypical composers that we learn about in music history and the rest of our music study?
1: I absolutely have. I would say even um, we just had an announcement with the Atlanta Symphony uh, to the musicians last week of, of what repertoire and soloists, et cetera, we're going to be covering between now and June. Mm-hmm. Um, even in COVID times, you know, as you all probably know, we're one of the lucky orchestras where we're actually working right now. Yeah. We're actually making concerts, we're, um, we're recording them on video and then streaming them. And um, within the limitations of only being able to have 35 musicians on stage right now, per the CDC guidelines for our institution, um, even within those guidelines, I'm seeing um, so many of our concerts going forward between January and June, which they have not announced yet to the public, but I'm seeing diversity I have not seen before. And I'm so happy to see it. It's, it's been a, a mandate from um, the musicians in the orchestra. It's also been a mandate from our management and our artistic staff. Everybody wants that. It's the, it's the cultural conversation we are having way too late, but we're having it now. And I think it's terribly important and, and it's really exciting. And I'm really excited about some of the artists and some of the works that we're gonna present. Um, spoiler alert uh the marion ensemble is going to play a piece on one of our subscription broadcasts so because we actually have some opportunity that'll be awesome yeah for we have some opportunity for chamber music on our subscription broadcasts, which we never (laughs) would do ordinarily because of course we always feature the entire orchestra
0: yeah Awesome. Yeah, I think there's some awesome things. I mean, of course, it's such an unfortunate uh, situation with with COVID and obviously the health crisis. But I think it's uh, forced a lot of us to be creative, I think, and also think outside of the box. And I think we're we're being really innovative and fresh, like it it feels like more fresh now, like as we've had to stop doing the normal things. Um, But I wanted to say so we did a few episodes ago. We talked about burnout you know, we're getting to the point of the semester where it was a lot of, we have our friends who are undergrads who are doing their pre-screenings for schools. And then we ourselves either are new teachers or first year master students are kind of going through the grind because it's not only a normal semester, but it's all these modifications and restrictions because of COVID. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you, and this is, I mean, you can relate this to being within COVID or without, or not being, but like, I guess it's like knowing how to Push yourself without overdoing it, and knowing when you reach your limit. And because you, as a performing, you talked about it earlier, you would just lock yourself in your room and you would play like it was just a like constant thing. And of course, everyone's different, but I think um, a lot of us fall into it again. It's that same thing of like online people saying, all the, "Oh, I practice ten hours a day, yada yada yada, all this stuff." So, <laughs> so I guess um, how how did you figure out how, like where what your limit was and how to not go past that.
1: Uh fantastic question, Lauren. Um I think for every individual the answer to that question is gonna be a little bit different because we're all biochemically in, in you know individual. Um but I I will just share like personally I feel that when I'm working and I'm practicing that the thing that burns out for me is not like my shoulders and my hands and my neck. It's not a physical thing. It's my brain. And I can, um, if I'm practicing really efficiently, my brain is pretty much done after about two hours. Um, I can't like, because I am putting so much mind to the matter of what I'm doing that I can't focus any any further playing or practicing that I do, do beyond that point is like it it I'm just playing but I'm not accomplishing anything so one mm-hmm. of the things that I learned I, I would say I learned it my freshman year of college was how to do that with how to practice efficiently and like he said you know like some people are like oh I practice 10 hours a day and I'm always <laughs> like oh, chuckle chuckle because I Don't see how, I mean, if someone is really putting their mind to the matter and it's like super goal oriented practicing where even if it's a really small goal, even if you're like, okay, I'm going to learn this two measure passage and get it to tempo within the next 45 minutes. I'm going to play it in this rhythm 50 times. I'm going to play it in this rhythm 50 times. Then I'm going to do these note groupings with it. Then I'm going to put my metronome on. I'm going to do it in groups of four you know, or whatever it is. Um, if you are focusing only like that, like it's goal oriented practicing, um, you're exhausted after a couple of
2: hours,
1: maybe three, maybe three hours tops. So, um, that's the kind of practicing that I think as we age and I'm including (laughs) you guys are so young, but I'm including you in that because you're all at a point in your life, you're grown up, you're, you're on your own, you're figuring things out and You'll find in some ways, like as you get older, your time for that kind of work actually decreases because life happens and getting really good at using the little time you have to get the most bang for your buck with practicing is a real skill. I had to learn that um, my first year of college because my teacher, Julius Baker at the time, he made us learn a new piece every week and bring in the pianist like with piano accompaniment. And mm-hmm. he also, like, he kind of um, gave you a hard time if it wasn't memorized. And that's that's what we had to do. And then my other teacher, Jeff Kaner, and, who I'm still in touch with, and I absolutely adore him. He's an amazing teacher, amazing player. He made us, for his lessons, we had to learn four etudes a week. And they weren't, like, beginning etudes. They were, like, the most technical etudes that are written for the flute. And so you know you're I was just forced like I had to figure it out I had to figure out like how can I do this that was the best preparation I could have had though for playing a new program in the ASO every single week and you know a new sim- brand new you know a symphony every single week and when I first started of course they were new to me because I'd never played the rock Mono-off symphonies I never played a lot of the music that we played now I've played there's almost nothing that I haven't played but but you know it's um As far as burnout, I think it's really important for us to, I'll just give my little plug here. I think it's really important for us um, to listen to our bodies. So I think um, to not push past the point where you're either like in pain from holding your instrument or whatever it is, like not to, to push past that point, also not to push past the point where your brain is just overloaded. Because we can't work, we, we can't get work done in that state. Um, I'm a big fan of like, you know, getting enough sleep, having a really healthy diet. I'm a huge fan of exercise. I exercise every single day. Um, I'm also a really big fan of meditation. I, I came to that later in life, but I, um, I, I got trained on how to do transcendental meditation a number of years ago. And I, I think it's an incredible tool for all human beings, but especially for musicians who do what we do um, in terms of clarifying the brain, finding inspiration, um, finding our intuition. I think that that work is invaluable. Like I think everybody should be trained in how to to meditate. Any kind of meditation is beneficial. I'm a big fan of transcendental because that's what I do. Um, So I just wanted to mention that as well. And take, taking time off. Like if you're in really good shape and you work really consistently, taking time off can be the best thing you ever did. Like take a day off, take two days off and then come back. And sometimes it's like a math problem. Like you're trying to do something and trying to do something. And then you step away for a few hours and you come back and you're like, Oh, that's how that's supposed to be be solved. You know, it's music can be like that as well.
0: Awesome. So, um, we want to wrap up the Oh, I, unless Michael, we wanted to say something before. Good question.
3: So I know me and Lauren were like first year master students. We're still in the grind of like figuring like the last bit of technical stuff out and then really working on our musicianship and undergrads are really working on a lot of technical stuff. And I know for me, I've become very analytical. While I'm very curious while I'm practicing, very analytical. But when I go to play stump something, I can't always turn that side off and just only music and i was wondering if you ever had a student like that who's extremely analytical or curious while they're still let's say pseudo performing in a lesson or in a performance and they haven't learned how to turn that side of their brain off
1: that's a that's actually a really good problem to have michael because you have to have the analytical i think to um go past the point on your instrument where you're just kind of riding on your natural ability mm-hmm. or where you are at, at that given moment, um, you have to be analytical. Into your brain has to work in a way that will improve something. And in order to get there, you have to analyze what you're doing and be critical. And you know, um, your brain has to be active, you know, and yeah. thinking about what you're doing. Um, I would suggest, um, and that that's a it's a great problem to have. And it's it's I've had that that issue before. And one of the ways that I work, you know do this with my st- very students who have mentioned this to me or I see that they're experiencing this or in myself is that I, um, I look at the music that I'm about to perform or that I'm working on and I, I look for the inspiration part of it. So like, so like, and Lauren knows, like in my excerpt book of the, the excerpt book by Jeannie Baxter that all flute players use now like if you open my book, I have a word written in front of every single excerpt in that book. It might be a word. It might be a phrase. And because I have something, I have an aesthetic that I'm thinking about when I play that excerpt. You know, it might be, um, you know, like my, my, my Bach, uh, St. Matthew Passion says cathedral, because I have this really clear um, picture of a cathedral with all this stained glass. Um, or I have a like in front of my afternoon buffon, I have like this. I have a French impressionist landscape painting. Then in, in my in my mind, when I'm playing mm-hmm. this, or you know, um, yeah. Or I ha- you know, I, ha- I have images. I have a word. My Brahms Fourth, I think right now says melancholy, um, and that mm-hmm. informs mm-hmm. like the, the sound quality that I'm going for. It inf- informs the phrasing that I'm going for. I wrote I wrote inner melancholy you know for that one you know so for every of course there's a lot of different answers for that but um just looking at the piece looking at the excerpt looking at the sonata or whatever the etude even that we're working on and saying what is the content here what is the aesthetic that the composer might be imagining with these sounds and trying to keep our mind when we're performing something trying to keep our mind on that upper level rather than letting it sink into the technical level, as you just described. Um, I also find like, it's really fascinating, especially the older I get, like reading about the piece, reading about the composer, like, oh my gosh, this piece was written when the composer was in exile in the Ural Mountains in 1944, right? when World War II was going on. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they were angry at Stalin. Maybe they were, you know, like knowing these things and I'm thinking about that when I'm performing the piece, because you know, hopefully all the work, the technical work I've done is done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And every now and then there's a measure that goes by like, I gotta be thinking about the technique or it's just not gonna come out. But in general, when we, when we perform something, I think we can really live in this higher thought process and emotional process that is like communicating the emotional content of the music itself. Um, those are some of the tools that I use to hopefully accomplish that.
0: Okay, thank awesome. you. Yeah, awesome. So we have a game that we're gonna play. We always do like an end of the um, end of the video game. So th- this uh, week's game is "Would You Rather." Okay, so and everyone like just you just say your answer whenever it comes out. So first one: is, huh, Would you rather play under Toscanini or Fritz Reiner?
1: Oh,
0: Toscanini. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I don't know I'm scared minor.
2: Minor,
1: minor. <laughs> I think I'm scared of both of them actually
0: <laughs> exactly that's like a hard one I think I would also t- I would say Toscanini I would say well. Toscanini, Toscanini. yeah I just like a little that. bit less uh evil um <laughs> so would you rather see the premiere of Tristan and Isolde or Carmen or would you rather have seen whenever it first premiered like in that setting
1: Oh, probably Carmen. (laughs) I don't know why.
0: Yep, same. I agree. You said Tristan, Michael? Oh, because you like Wagner, so I shouldn't have even asked. (laughs) Okay, would you rather have met uh, Bernstein or Copeland? (laughs) I know mine. Bernstein. Same. (laughs) I just think that would be fun. I just, you say Copeland, Michael? Oh, my gosh. I just wanted to go against everyone. <laughs> um, would you have rather met Brahms or Beethoven?
2: Brahms.
3: Sorry. Beethoven.
1: I'm going to say Beethoven. I don't know if I would be able to skip it. It's
0: hard. <laughs> would you ra- okay, this is the last one. Um, would you rather have lived in the Baroque period or the Classical period? <laughs> <laughs> I already knew that answer.
1: I think Baroque because they didn't have well, they didn't in the classical period either. But you know, when you when they heard like an appoggiatura release, they could only hear it when it was performed live, and it just took your breath away in a way that nothing on the iPhone could ever do. <laughs>
0: I agree. I like, I think I like the culture of the Baroque period a little bit more. So I think I, I would have liked, or the Baroque dances and all that stuff, like the court stuff. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> agreed. <laughs> well, um, this has been such a fun episode. And thank you so much, Christina, for joining us. And we really appreciate all the knowledge and insight that you shared with us. Um, uh, guys, uh, make sure you like and subscribe below. We'll see you next week. Stay safe. Happy holidays.
1: Bye. Thank you for Bye. having me. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening and being a part of our conversation. Remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's episode, so leave us a comment or review. See you next time.